Can you imagine if, if we treated other sins sort of the way we do anxiety and worry? Oh, the times I have heard it said, well, I'm just a worrier. Do that same sentence, but substitute arsonist. I just like it when buildings burn down. Tonight we're going to talk about worry and anxiety and discontentment and ingratitude. And I think I think I can show you that the three of them are if not uh, they're intertwined. They're going to tend to travel together. The last, the last paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount lays down an important principle. And interestingly enough, there is a strategic paragraph in Matthew 6 that we'll look at in a minute regarding worry and anxiety. But I'm talking about Matthew 7. And at first, it doesn't seem to, to bear on the topic du jour at all, but it does help us with a principle that I think is important. As Jesus was concluding the Sermon on the Mount, he said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. Now that, that specific wording is very, very important because we're going to hear it again in a minute. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Exactly the same words here. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. That entire description of what the house encountered is repeated with exact precision. And that house fell, and great was the fall of it. It seems that the Lord's point was foundations matter. <laughs> and before we go far tonight in, in examining these more tolerated, if not more tolerable, more tolerated sins, uh, we, we, need, we need to deal with, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to posit two foundational truths. Two foundational truths um, that, that are larger than tonight. Well, the second of them is, feeds right into tonight's study. But the first of them is larger than our subject matter tonight. In fact, it is, it is, it is, it is so foundational uh, I would argue that it, it's one of the one of the main sort of theological propositions one has to accept to to live in an orderly and coherent way as you live out your faith. So, foundation number one: God is absolutely sovereign. Now that should be about as controversial as me saying ice is cold and, and July in Fort Myers is hot. 
But as a practical matter, we sometimes want to hedge back from that or fail to trust that or impose all kinds of footnotes on that simple statement. I'm going to suggest drop the footnotes. Uh, I think it was R.C. Sproul, the late, great, late 20th, 21st century theologian, who said that if there's, I'm paraphrasing him because I didn't look this quote up, that if there's one molecule in the entire universe that is acting apart from God's will, then God is not sovereign. There is not one molecule of his universe that is acting apart from his will. We love Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Book ended with Romans 8.28. Every time we consider Romans 8.28, and what a marvelous promise that is, by the way. But the teeth in the assurance that comes from Romans 8.28 could be found in Ephesians 1.11, which asserts that God is the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. The all things working together for good in Romans 8.28 is not some random Tetris puzzle where everything just tumbles into place magically. There is a will behind Romans 8.28. There is a determination behind Romans 8.28. And it is the utter sovereignty of the Lord who, who is working for his glory and our good in all things such that all things work together for good. Now, I will insert a footnote there, and we've, we've tried, when we talk about Romans 8, 28, we've, we've tried to be cautious to remind ourselves, Romans 8, 28 does not promise that all things will be okay, Amen. right? Because sometimes the medical test comes back icky. By the way, my, I think I teach y'all about my biopsies, nevuses, which are basically moles on steroids. Um, I am... Uh, for now, uh, I had a couple of biopsies on a couple of spots. I grew up uh, on the beach in the 60s up in Northeast Florida. We never heard of sunscreen. And uh, so my, my, my skin across my back, shoulders, feet, arms is a ongoing science fair project. Um, and, and just, it goes with, if you, if you grew up like I grew up in the 60s, you build a great relationship with your dermatologist in your 60s, um, as I am learning. So God didn't owe me those benign test results, did he? God hasn't violated Romans 8.28 had those test results come back really bad. All things is very, very big. And so within that all things, some things are part of what's going to ultimately work out for good, but in the short term, I might not like it which is part of what we have to deal with this evening. So foundation number one, God is utterly in charge. If he's making it up as he goes, or if he's responding, you know, if he's, if he's uh, Adrian Rogers used to say, the Holy Trinity has never called an emergency meeting. He also said that if you, if you pressed your ear to heaven's door, you would never hear God go, 
Uh-oh. Second foundational truth. And if we don't, if we don't agree on this one, then tonight really is just chasing our tails. Anxiety is sin. If we're going to talk about anxiety and worry as sins we tolerate, we have to agree that they're sin. Um, now, Matthew 6, if you were with me in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, just peel back one, one, one chapter. Therefore, I tell you, who is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount? That's the easiest quiz you'll take tonight. It's our Lord. Preserve for us in his word. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, stop right there. Some of you who are trying to carve out space where your worry is not sin will have noticed he's talking about three specific things, food, drink, and clothing. So you might be saying to yourself, well, I'm not worried about those. The pantry at home is full and I've got clothes to wear and all is well. I'm worried about a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, he's still got you. I read on verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. That's pretty broad. That, that just caught your previously safe topic that you thought maybe his omission had given you permission to worry about. Don't be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. No less authoritatively than the Sermon on the Mount, the Apostle Paul also preserved for us in God's word. Do not be anxious about anything. You know, I've, I've been around the Bible all my life. My mom and dad were, are believers. I grew up church kid, blessed to have had both the education and the, the discipling that I've had. I've been around the Bible a lot. And I will confess to you, there are whole books that I just approach them and it's kind of like, okay, where is the on-ramp to knowing what I'm supposed to do with that? Usually with some work, I can find it. But there are parts of the Bible that are difficult because they're difficult to understand. There are also parts of the Bible that are difficult because they're ridiculously easy to understand. 
Anybody in the room have an intellectual struggle with do not be anxious about anything? Need that clarified or broken down for you? Or, or, or I didn't say do you struggle with obeying it. Anybody want to say that's just too deep? I can't possibly understand what he means. Let me tell you what he means. Do not be anxious about anything. That's what he means. Anxiety is sin. All right. If we disagree on those two things, if God is not in charge, if somehow the universe is just like a, a fish flopping around on the, on, the, on the dock and God is in there somewhere sort of waiting to see how it's all going to come out, if that's true, or if worry is not sin, anxiety is not sin, then your worries are completely okay. God's not utterly in charge. If you and God are together waiting to see how this is going to come out, I'd be worried too. In fact, odds are you're not worried enough. If the universe is, is random like a pinball running around in a pinball machine and God is waiting to see how it's going to come out, I don't think you're worried enough. And if worry's not sin and you happen to groove on it, Go for it. Worry all you want. I hope you enjoy it. But it's sin. And here, here are at least, at least two reasons that we can, we, can, we can call out anxiety as sin. And they're, and they're related. One of them is a distrust in the Lord's, well, just a distrust in the Lord. My, my thing that has me worried. As, as I practically consider it. Somewhere in there I've made space, perhaps, to, um, to accommodate the mindset that even he can't solve this one. Lord, I know, I know you're powerful, but I see this, and not even you, I mean, not even you. And while we might not say that out loud, we get a little, we get a little, little echo chamber in the back of our brain, you know, and, 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 and even casually we might say something like, well, I tell you what, I don't think even God himself could solve this one. And uh, it's, it's, it's a turn of phrase, and what you mean to say is, you don't possibly see a solution. And, and you're probably right, you don't. But be careful even, even kidding with a statement like, this issue is beyond even the reach of God's power to solve. I'd, 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 I'd step back a step from even allowing that thought to form. Or it's sort of the, the, the equivalent thought, the, the, still the same thing, we're talking about distrust in the Lord. His, his, his awareness is not up to speed. Um, I've, I've seen the pattern here and I know what's going to happen and it's bad. And I see it so clearly, evidently I've raced ahead of God who is omnitemporal. You are not going to race ahead of him in time. And he, not only, by the way, is he everywhere, he's every when Amen. simultaneously. 
You don't have to worry about racing ahead of him. I love when people say, I just didn't want to outrun God. He's really, really fast. You don't. If you mean make a flippant decision when you should make a prayerful decision, I'm with you. It's just funny the things we say. More, more than just distrusting his power and awareness, though, the second, the second indicator that, that really makes it clear that anxiety is sin is we, we, we disagree with his decision-making. That is, we do not agree with or accept his providential will. If you say, well, I absolutely would, Brother Russell, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm an Orthodox Christian believer. I, I hold that God is absolutely sovereign in all things. I get that. But I'm still worried about this thing that's coming at me. Well, if you, if you hold yourself to intellectual honesty and theological consistency, what you must then admit is you don't think you agree with what he's up to or what he may be up to. That tiptoes right into rebellion. Worry is the lighter face of a sin that is at heart rebellion against the God who is in charge. And I know that's a grave and heavy way to put it, but I believe I'm right. Job chapter 1. Job is a fascinating book to me because if you, if you hold to a sort of a doctrine of progressive revelation that says that God began early in, in, in human history unfolding his will and character and design and, and, and slowly through the ages of uh, the, the time of Abraham, which is when Job was written, through to the end of the first century AD as God finished his word, God is, God is bringing more and more truth along. That's what the doctrine of progressive revelation is, that, that God, through the, through the centuries where God's word was being given, God is giving more and more clear and detailed truth. There is an astonishing amount. Job, I believe, to be the oldest book in the Bible. It is, uh, Moses wrote Genesis. Job lived about the time of Abraham. So that centuries before Moses would write Genesis. Genesis obviously occurs first, but Job seems to be a contemporary of Abraham, written probably by Job. And in the very first chapter, well, second chapter, pardon me. In the first chapter, Job's life caves in. You've had some bad days. Everybody in the room who's old enough to, to, to follow me, and, and not a little kiddo, every single one of us in the room has had rotten days. Welcome to life in a fallen world. You've not had a rotten day on par with what Job experienced in Job chapter 1. And if you'd like to argue with that, reread Job chapter 1. And at the end of that rotten day, Job said to his wife, 
This is the back part of Job chapter 2, verse 10. No, I tell you, it is in chapter 1. I can't read my own notes with my Bible open in front of me. The last three verses of chapter, 10, of chapter 1, after, after loss of his family, loss of his stuff, Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground. No sin in grieving, no sin in mourning. He tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. It's a gaspingly surprising word in its context. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And lest we are prone to not accept that statement as the rock-solid statement that it is, the very last verse of the chapter gives us this. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. When we worry, it's because we don't believe God is going to give us what we want. If you believe God is in charge, now if you don't believe God's in charge, then your worry is just life in a random universe that you've imagined exists. But in the universe that is, where God is in charge, and those of us who think biblically about the nature of God and his sway over his universe, then what we're worried about, well, I'm just worried that it might rain next Thursday. We've got these big plans and it might rain next Thursday. All right, and, 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 and who is going to make the decision regarding whether or not it rains next Thursday? Well, I'm just worried that that, that test is gonna come back and it could be bad. Who is responsible for your physical well-being, ultimately? Well, I'm just, I'm just worried that my, my, my child may dwell even longer in the far country or may even, in fact, never come home. And who is ultimately in charge of the state of your child's heart? Of course, those small anxieties, Bricker was teasing me because uh, last week I couldn't find my Bible. I, went, I spent about five or six minutes in this room right before this class, what was two weeks ago when I taught. I couldn't find, I put my Bible and my legal pad down somewhere and, uh, and Mark said, well, that's, that's a great example of, of, of anxiety. And I said, well, to be clear, I definitely, I mean, this is, this is a, a, my, my, it's been my preaching Bible for some years and it's got a lot of notes in it. Uh, I, would, I would like to not lose it. My, I, I, I live in legal pads. Um, but the worst case scenario was I'm going home 75 minutes earlier and y'all can figure out what to do. So 
Notice how I rationalize my own anxiety, right? These small anxieties grow to big worries with practice. If you entertain or tolerate a chronic sin, you do get better at it. So what do we do? What are some, what are some pragmatic suggestions if you struggle with worry? I love, I love, love, love the story in Mark 9 of the, of the dad who had the demon-possessed kid. And he'd had a demon-possessed kid for a long time. And he got to Jesus and he made a wonderful statement. It's wonderful for its rawness and its honesty. Jesus asked him how long has this boy had the demon and he said, um, from childhood, this is Mark chapter nine, I'm now in verse 22. And it's often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Saying to Jesus, if you can do anything. Now he didn't know any better at that moment, perhaps. We do. I love Jesus' answer. Jesus said, said, Jesus said to him, if you can. I don't sense any unkindness in that. I just think Jesus is calling him out. You do know that, that right now, I can count and tell you the number of hairs on your head as easily as I can count your eyes. If you can. I love the Father's response. I love it. I have it highlighted and circled in every Bible I own. I believe. What did he say next? Do you remember? Help my unbelief. See, I live in this evidentiary world. I see what I see and I hear what I hear and touch, you know, my, my senses are getting the input. This, this, this thing around us that wants to tell us it's the real world of, of cause and effect and randomness. Wants, wants to influence me away from my absolute trust in God's absolute in chargeness and change my foundation from one of rock to one of sand. And oh, how often have I prayed. Lord, I believe I have taught the truth I'm right now desperate to find so I can cling to it because right now it feels less true than I have stated that it is. Then I know that it is. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And the Lord did not rebuke that daddy's prayer. In fact, he, he uh, cast a demon out of his son. So, Brother Russell, I, I get it. But worry is a struggle. And I, I believe all the theology of what you're saying, but worry is my struggle. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I bet he will. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. We get to verse 7, and I almost did this. Verse 7 says, Cast, casting all your anxieties on him. And we, and we almost treat that casting as though it's just a simple verb, cast. 
And so the sentence starts, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But that's not what verse 7 is doing grammatically. It's, it's not simply a verb. It's a, it's a participle in support of an earlier idea. So if we let the whole sentence stand instead of letting verse 7 drop a, drop a line in the middle of a sentence, we have to go back to verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. With worry is this mess of, of rebellion and selfishness because we're very concerned, ultimately, that we're not going to get our way. And I know I could be talking about big issues. Of course, of course I'm talking about big issues. We're, we're concerned that a sovereign God is not going to solve our epic problem in a way that we think makes sense. Humble yourselves. Fall before him. Lord, I do not have this, but you do. Casting now, verse 7, continues the same sentence. As we humble ourselves, we are casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Don't look at verse 7 without verse 6. It's, you're literally tearing a sentence in half, which is a real violation of context, right? And then finally, Psalm 139. Psalm 139 gets a lot of, of airtime because of its pro-life affirmations regarding the unborn. And that's, that's well, and, well and good. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that is a verse that is near and dear, as it should be, to those of us who hold to the sacredness of unborn human beings which I pray we all do. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you and I was being made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And of course, that's poetic language. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. You're not the author of your life story. You just aren't. He is. Brother Russell, are you suggesting we should just put it in passive drift mode? I preached on the judgment seat of Christ two Sundays ago. Of course I'm not suggesting you live it in the passive drift mode. You have stewardship to attend to. Attend to it. But do not attend to it in either active or practical ignorance regarding God's absolute oversight. And by the way, frustration, for what it's worth, for just a second, frustration is just what happens when you take anxiety and add anger. 
I'm anxious and I'm mad about it. Now I'm frustrated. Um, deal with anxiety and worry and you'll deal with your frustrations. Because frustration cannot flourish in an environment where anxiety is absent. All right. Roman 2. Discontent or discontentment. The thing we worried about happened. See, I told you. My grandmother, and I've heard other people say it since, but in my, in my own life experience, the quote was, I first heard the quote from my grandmother, Stedman, um, who was a very godly lady. And she must not have been too prone to worry because she didn't, she didn't, she joked about worry, which probably means she wasn't too consumed by it. I, I, I didn't have much adult life overlap with her to know. But she used to say, don't tell me worry doesn't work. Most of the things I worry about don't happen. <laughs> I am convinced that Mike Gibson thinks that he is keeping our house safe from all manner. He has, a, he has his favorite chair is up by a window on the front of our house where my desk is up, 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 up uh, in one of the upstairs rooms. And Gibson's favorite chair is by, by my desk. Gibson is my older dog, and, and he and I are, are buddies. And uh, he, he sits in that chair, and I, I call it his overwatch position because it is his nest whereby he's watching the life of the street unfold. And I am absolutely convinced that he is absolutely convinced that he is defending the house from all manner of attackers that show up on the street. Further, I'm convinced that he thinks he's very good at it because the house stands uninvaded because of his barking. Discontent is what happens when the thing we worried about happens. And now we are in a situation we don't like. Worry puts that out in the future. Discontent brings it to the now. And by the way, before I go any further, there are times and places where, where some restlessness, some, some desire, some aspiration, some hope are called for. If there is, if there is something that is, that, is, that is within the sphere of your stewardship and you have it in your Christ-honoring power to address it, it's not wrong to aspire that it be well addressed. We're not talking about passivity. I teach 12th grade Bible. In this room, my, my next group of seniors will be with me in about a month. And every year, early in the year, oh, Pastor Howard, I've heard about your tests. I'm a pushover, but the tests are kind of formidable. Oh, Pastor Howard, I'm worried about that test that we have tomorrow. Well, let me ask you something. Did you take good notes? Well, <laughs> have you reviewed your notes such that tonight's studying is just a matter of consolidating review thinking you've already done? You know, like everyone who's ever given you a test has told you to be ready for a test. Well, oh, little brother, little sister, you're not nearly worried enough. My test will clean your clog. 
because you were kind of supposed, supposed to be ready. But there are times in life, and you and I both know it. One author that I read gave this bullet list. This is not the entire bullet list. It's things like, maybe you're in a job that rewards you less than you think it ought to, either financially or situationally. You're in a job that just is difficult for you to love. You're either single and don't want to be or married and truth be told don't want to be. You've got a marital status situation that is not fulfilling for you one way or the other. You're, you're childless and you hoped for children. You have a, a chronic disability or illness or even a physical characteristic you don't like. Etc. More than any other single subject, when the New Testament talks about a lack of contentment, it's talking about material circumstances, money or closely related things to money. In marriage related matters, if you are not content, 1 Corinthians 7, the entire chapter. I'm not going to read it. It would take more than the time I have left. 1 Corinthians 7, the entire. If you are single and I'm not talking about praying for a future spouse. I'm not talking about desiring to one day be married. I'm talking about a discontent in your spirit. 1 Corinthians 7. If you are married and have forgotten some of your blessings and responsibilities, 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, the chapter could be headed, discontent regarding marital status. It's a primer. On financial matters, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. The paragraph, verses 10 through 13. Philippians is a thank you note. You know, these, these letters from the Apostle Paul, which, which God the Holy Spirit inspired, which the church circulated, and which God the Holy Spirit affirmed, and, and which became our New Testament, began life as letters. Written in and to specific circumstances. Knowing and understanding that is a part of understanding their context. Paul was in prison in Rome with a degree of freedom. The Philippian church, which he had planted, that's Acts 16, and with which he had had an ongoing relationship. In fact, he was probably in Philippi when he wrote 2 Corinthians, which we're studying on Sunday morning. So he had, a, 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 he had visited Philippi several times, great relationship with that growing church. Well, they sent him a support gift because the imprisonment that he's in when he gets Philippians, or when he writes Philippians, is his first imprisonment. And it's a kind of a house arrest. It's not the, the deadly death, death row stuff of his second imprisonment. And so he's allowed to kind of live as he can live, but he's not allowed to earn anything. So the church of Philippi sends him a love gift. And the book of Philippians is the occasion of his thanking them 
for their remembering him. And he gets kind of to that in four, beginning in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Let's thank you for the check. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And while I thank you for the check, it's not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned. Boy, I was way too old before I caught that. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now he's talking about financial situation. That's what's in view in this paragraph. I didn't become content because I finally had enough money. I didn't become content because finally I had the circumstances that I wanted. I did not sit on my stool and wait for contentment to break over me like a wave. I learned. How did you learn piano if you play piano? Started with the simple stuff and you practice, practice, practice. How did you learn anything you know? You started with the introductory version and you practice, practice, practiced. How do you learn to be content? You practice, practice, practice. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I will take two steps down this rabbit trail for a minute. Philippians 4.13 is ripped out of its context and made to say what it does not say more than perhaps any single verse in the New Testament. Philippians 4.13 is about something very specific. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if that great big rock falls on me, I'll be able to throw it right off. That is not the promise of, first, of, of Philippians 4.13. Philippians 4.13 is not promising you that you are omnipotent. Philippians 4.13 is about financial circumstances. It is therefore not about anything else. The promise of Philippians 4.13 is if you don't have any money, you are a child of God and you are his and he will hold you up. And if you have a trillion dollars, you can live faithfully as a steward, which probably is harder than poverty based on the tone of the New Testament. I hear Philippians 4.13, well, I know I'm going to get through this because I can do all things. And, and the thing is about something not financial. And by the way, there are other promises of God's faithfulness and our ability to face circumstances. But don't make Philippians 4.13 mean, I have a t-shirt, I actually have a t-shirt that says, I can do all things through a verse ripped from its context. <laughs> it's one of my favorite Christian t-shirts. Stephen Curtis Chapman, in, in my view, it's, I won't, I won't even say it in my view, it's the best. I, it, 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 is the, it is the Christian music album I have most treasured. It's Stephen Curtis Chapman's album, 
beauty will rise. And if you have been, are, or will go through a difficult chapter, I think that's everybody. And you've not availed, and you say, well, I'm just not all that terribly, I'm, I'm not a person that listens to music 24-7 at all. But I have wept through this album on multiple, multiple, multiple occasions. The album was written in the wake, in May of 2008, the Chapman family, on a day they were all at home together, when his teenage son, not driving like an idiot, missed the fact that his five-year-old daughter was playing in the driveway. And his teenage son ran over and killed his five-year-old daughter. That's grief from so many different directions, I cannot fathom it. To lose a child is horrible. To lose a child because of a mistake made by another of your children. How do you, how do you grieve one child and comfort another at the same time? I have, that's, that is a, that is a, 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 a pond, in an ocean in which I've never had to swim. A particular song, a favorite of mine. I'm not gonna sing, and all God's people said amen. The song is called Our God is in Control. And remember, the, the man who wrote this is comforting his teenage son who has killed his little girl. And he and his wife are weeping. This is not how it should be. This is not how it could be. But this is how it is. Our God is in control. This is not how it will be when we finally will see, we'll see with our own eyes, he was always in control. And we'll sing holy, holy, holy is our God and we will finally really understand what that means. We'll sing holy, holy, holy is our God while we're waiting for that day. This is not where we planned to be when we started this journey. But this is where we are. Our God is in control. Though this first taste is bitter, there will be sweetness forever when we finally taste and see that our God is in control. And then the chorus repeats. Your discontent. It's a recurring theme with worry, isn't there? The situation in which you are not content is a situation of which he is the author. And your lack of contentment looks a lot like selfishness and rebellion when viewed from his side. And again, if there is something, <laughs> if the student makes a 52 on the test and they're not content with that, I'm not going to tell them to settle down and be content. I'm going to say to them that within your Christ-honoring stewardship is the capacity to study harder next time. 
But if there are things that God has placed you in that are not addressable by you in a way that would honor Christ, learn contentment. How? Practice. Finally, and I must be done. Very briefly, third thing, we get to my last point as the clock runs out. Ingratitude. Ingratitude. The bar for gratitude is very, very high. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says that we are to be thankful in all circumstances. That is, there is never a set of circumstances where we get a pass on our obligation to be grateful. You say, wow, that's a lot. Oh, I love you, it gets worse. Ephesians 5.20 says we're to be thankful for everything. You know, in everything, I can almost get my head around. But Lord, have you noticed there's a lot I do not like? Yeah, Russell, that's me too. Drat. How? How do I how do I get to a place where the the atmosphere around me is one of gratitude? I suggest this and I'm done. We started tonight with two foundational matters that that God is providential and anxiety is sin. Can I add a third foundational truth? Here it comes. Everything we have. And you can define everything as broadly as you want to. And you can define have as broadly as you want to. All of it is from him. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being, this is Paul, preaching to the philosophers of Athens, who had a bunch of, um, <laughs> anybody, anybody besides me like the, uh, the Avengers movie? I got lost in the Marvel stuff when it got to the point that I had to have a whole net uh, notebook to keep up with who's who. But in the first Avengers movie, Loki, Thor's cousin, makes a big speech about he doesn't have to mess with any of you. You people are all beneath me. I don't have to deal with you people. I'm paraphrasing because after all, I'm a god. And Hulk picks him up by his ankle and smashes him back and forth into the floor, throws him aside and says, puny god. <laughs> well, the gods of Athens were puny gods. They were needy. I always think of, when I, preach on, when I think about Acts 17, I always think about the Hulk and his puny God. Um, because the gods of the Athenians were needy. They, they received sacrifices because if you didn't bring your sacrifice to Neptune and Neptune got ticked because he was hangry because you didn't bring your sacrifice, then he's going to wreck your boat. 
In contrast, Paul explains the God who is, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Because he doesn't. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I get frustrated by flat tires. But almost every time I've ever had a flat tire, at that same moment, I've had three perfectly intact tires I do not deserve. I have three times the specific reason to be grateful when compared to the one thing about which I am ungrateful. I have never faced fill in the blank. There's a fallen universe full of things I've never faced. I've faced a few bummers. I've never had a day where my ingratitude was justified. And you haven't either. You have never had a day when ingratitude was a justifiable position. And I know that's a blunt way to put it, but you know I'm right. One more time, we come back to that overlapping diagram that brings us back to our Lord who loves us is in charge. He is the potter, we are the clay. He is the shepherd, we are the sheep. He is the author of our circumstances. And so whether it's worry or discontent or ingratitude, our issue is with him. And he has proven his love for you sufficiently. On the cross, if that was all he ever did for you, and you and I both know he's done far more, those sins we tolerate would be viewed as a good bit less tolerable.